0: Hello, welcome to this edition of the F-Rated Podcast. I'm Anu Anand, journalist and broadcaster. And I'm Holly
1: Tarquini, the founder of the F-Rating. And the F in the F-Rating is for feminist,
0: and that is obviously intersectional feminist. Now, Holly, by profession, today's episode really should be coming last because we're talking to a critic, and of course, their job starts when the movie actually hits the screens.
1: Yes, but Helen O'Hara has also written a history of women in Hollywood. So her work is a really great foundation for understanding the film industry and how many women there were at the beginning compared to how many women there are now.
0: Yeah. So let's welcome Helen O'Hara, the British film critic and editor-at-large for Empire. She's also a co-host of the Empire podcast. Helen, it's really, really wonderful to have you here.
1: Thank you. Lovely to be here. Yeah, it's such a joy to have you, Helen. And both Anu and I are huge fans of your book, Women vs. Hollywood, which was more mind-blowing, I think, to Anu than it was to me. Anu, is that true? Yeah. <laughs>
0: I have never heard, not even in passing, the names that you mentioned at the beginning of the book, but we're going to talk about the book in in just like a minute. But I, I just wanted to I wanted to start by asking how you got into film criticism.
2: Uh, Yeah well honestly it was the kind of the dream job so I actually trained as a barrister Uh, I trained as a lawyer and I got all the way through and I qualified and I was so bored and I kept being bored and all of my friends who were barristers were having a great time and I'm like what's wrong with me I'm just not loving it so I finally jumped ship and I was sort of looking to move sideways towards film journalism like that was the dream but it wasn't realistic and then this internship came up at Empire and And there you go. Well, I just thought it wasn't realistic because I hadn't done any training in film or in journalism. And I was like, so that's two strikes against me. (laughs) Um, But I but I had, you know, been watching films, been reading about films, been reading Empire for years, um, both the magazine and the website. So it turned out when I went for it, like I kind of did know what they do and what they needed. And I was able to write, you know, a, a news article in roughly the right style. So there was still a huge learning curve ahead of me. But I think. Actually, legal training and learning to argue about things is no bad way to start as a film critic.
1: And did that give you some kind of protection as well against the onslaught of because being a critic means that you get a lot of criticism, don't you?
2: Yeah. And and to an extent, I think you have to be able to take that because if you're going to criticize others, you have to be able to take criticism yourself. I feel like that's pretty basic. But at the same time, you know, there's criticism that you feel is sometimes maybe unfair or unfounded. And so, you know, I have been known to argue back with people on the Internet, which is probably a bad idea. Not so much in my defence, but sometimes in defence of the things that I love and the things that I think are good um, and the things that I think are important. If people want to criticise me, that's kind of okay. Whatever, you know.
0: How male was Empire and the whole film criticism scene when you joined?
2: I mean, I was lucky that I came in at a time in Empire where um, a woman called Catherine was editing the website. Uh, A woman called Emma had already edited the magazine. But in terms of the writing staff for... Almost the entire time I was at Empire, I was the only female writer on staff. And I was on on staff for about 11 years. So for most of that time, I was the only female writer. So it, it is, uh, you know, it is a boys club. And that's not unique to Empire at all. Empire has uh, had a lot of female freelancers around that time. You know, we, we have kind of tried. <laughs> We've made an effort. But it is still very much a boys club. And it has been. And that's one of the things I tried to look at in the book as well is just why? You know, because there was a time when some of the most famous film critics were, were women. So how come the men kind of took that over as well? And I think there is that sense among some men that it is their thing, their club. I have had, you know, readers say to me, you know, essentially you can't review this. This isn't for you which I think is, is quite astonishing of a, a mainstream Hollywood film release, you know. Yeah. But th- there is that perception. This is our thing. This is our sandpit and we're going to play here. And, you know, the girls really should be over there playing with something else. Um, not, again, obviously not all men, hashtag not all critics, you know. But there is there is that underlying sense sometimes that that they are part of a boys club and that you're sort of, you know,
1: being a bit of a nuisance trying to get into it one of the things that I really love about you is that you love a lot of mainstream film that you're not kind of, (laughs) but you also love art house and Yeah. And smaller budget film, but that love of mainstream and things like the Marvel universe, are those the kind of spaces that you've been criticized for being female and having an opinion about? Um, yes yes sometimes yes i think and i don't think it's
2: unique to those but i think that's where the a lot of the online energy is you know all of these um people sitting at home on their computer screens i think a lot of them are talking about superhero movies and and sci-fi movies and things like that that specific instance of criticism i mentioned was from ghost rider 2 and i was like i mean not being funny but i think i can handle ghost rider 2 you know it's come on but um but yeah, I think I've, I've, I've somewhat proved myself in terms of the Marvel films just because I know them very well and I know the characters well. I get a lot of grief from DC readers because I think there is a perception. Uh, there is a perception that, first of all, it's us versus them in terms of DC and Marvel. And then if you're a woman on top of that, I think that kind of just magnifies some of the criticism you get.
0: So let's talk about your amazing book, Women Versus Hollywood, The Fall and Rise of Women in Film. Um, because of course I'm going to just inject, you know, uh, when you guys are talking about the fact that you're criticized for having an agenda and, you know, I I mean, my goodness, when you read this book, there's been an agenda all along and it's not your agenda. It's, it's quite a, quite a historic misogynist agenda. Just set the scene first. First of all, Mm. For, for, for people who don't know the history of film, like me, how early were women making films? I mean, basically from you might say day one or let's be generous and say
2: day two. You know, so the Lumiere brothers obviously did their first, uh, you know, public showcase at the end of 1895. Alice Guy Blaché made what we think may be the first narrative feature film or narrative like fictional film in 1896. So we're wow. talking a matter of a short number of months. And she she then, you know, got the bug and she started making lots and lots of little short films for Gaumont, where she worked and was head of production there for, you know, 10 years or something. But literally it was that soon. It was a matter of, I think, five months between the, the Lumiere brothers doing their exhibition and her making her film. And there were women in the Silent Era uh, who were making comparatively big budget films who were making comparatively epics now we're talking 30 minute epics but they were epics nonetheless um in those in those early literally the first decade of the 1900s by the second decade you had someone like lois weber who was the second highest paid director in all of hollywood not the second highest paid woman the second highest paid director
0: you know and we're still not back at that level 100 years later what what happened To those women. I mean, that's what I was, you know, reading your book, just going, I've never... You have several other names. Mm. Ida Lupino, Dorothy Arzner. I've never heard these names. I've heard the Lumiere brothers. I've heard Cecil B. DeMille. I've heard all of those names.
2: Sometimes it was conscious, right? So Alice Guy Blaché was left out of the Gaumont history of the studios when that was written. And that has to be conscious because she was there for a very long time. She was very important um, to the point where when the board tried to fire her once, uh, Gustave Eiffel, as in the the Eiffel Tower, stepped in and saved her job. So she was important and that was a conscious decision. But I think there was also an unconscious bias. There was an attempt by Hollywood to essentially forget about the silent era entirely and, and treat it like... They just didn't want to talk about it. It was embarrassing for everyone that there had been these, you know, slightly shonky, sometimes, you know, jerky, black and white, silent movies. And, you know, there was no need to dwell on that part of history. It was like the real history began with the studios, as far as a lot of Hollywood was concerned. And by the time the studios came in and by the time filmmaking became this huge business, women were pushed out because when investors start getting involved with big money... They didn't want to invest in women and the women who who survived into the late silent and early sound era were mostly the ones with husbands who could pretend they were essentially a directing team and who could hide behind their husbands a little bit. They would still do the work, but the husbands would be someone that the investor could deal with so he didn't have to be seen dealing with a woman.
1: It's so depressing, isn't it? Yeah. And there's that really amazing bit of footage of Alice Guy um talking to Gomez and saying, why did you leave me out? And he has no answer. Now,
0: there's actual footage of that? There's actual really? footage of her
1: asking wow. him. And she asks him in such a she's, not a... she's not a kind of asking in an angry, strident way. She's yeah. just asking in a really hurt kind of fundamentally not understanding why would you do that Mm. and he doesn't understand why he excluded her it's yeah yeah, it's really upsetting once money and big bucks got involved the women disappeared into the edit suite and behind the scenes where there was less ego and also with the auteurs that once you've got this kind of mythology of the white man that's leading everybody as though it's not a completely kind of collaborative venture that the yeah. women get squeezed out.
2: I think that's I think I mean look the the director didn't become the figure I- immediately. But it did yeah, it did take a bit of time for that that to kind of become the accepted wisdom and yes, that absolutely uh, screwed women frankly that was the that was a real a real nail in the coffin because if the director is the the single artistic genius in charge of your film well come on that doesn't you, you that image does not conjure women does it there are no great women artists and all these kind of myths come back into it but I think you're absolutely right. It's the money. It's the money that drove women out. It wasn't sound. They were mostly gone before sound came along. It was the, it was when film became longer and more expensive and needed more money.
0: And the investors just wouldn't give it to these female filmmakers. I mean, I just have to throw in some facts from your book because he's really stuck in my head. So if, you know, if anybody doesn't know this history, there were eight female directors you write in the book in 1917. Eight major female directors working for Universal in 2017, there was one. Yeah, <laughs> that's astonishing. That tells you everything you need to know. Fifty percent of silent films were directed, or edited, or written, or or starred women. And it was 1974. This is really astonishing because I was born in 1973. It was in 1974 that women could get a loan without a man. Yeah, 1974. So Just... when you talk about the money, that that's really it. And we've seen
2: this in other areas where something goes from being a cottage industry to being a big industry and suddenly it ceases to be something that women do. We we saw it with with weaving. We saw it with uh, whiskey, I believe. You know, it's happened before. Uh, We have to make sure it never happens again, but it does keep happening. Computer programming. When computer programming was seen as, as, you know, just a, a mechanical task, women were doing it and doing it very well. And then suddenly they realized that there was a lot of power there, so men took it back. It's just so frustrating because Hollywood was a brand new industry at a time when, you know, suffrage was an issue and women were pushing forward so much. And there were women directors who did make it work for, you know, 20, 30 years. And still they weren't able to to keep that momentum going and
1: keep pushing forward. So I'm always really interested in the whole male gaze and female gaze because I feel as though I totally get the the male gaze. I've been conditioned in it my whole life. I've been taught how to look at women through heterosexual male eyes. And I've actually probably been taught to look at men if they're sexualized in a homosexual male gaze. But I don't feel as though I've got any kind of grasp of the female gaze. Did you feel as though you found one in early women's cinema? Do you see one now?
2: Yeah, I think I mean, so I I, I did speak to Professor Mulvey, who came up with this, the sort of the female gaze thing. And, and she said she felt the female gaze. It's not an equal and opposite. It's not Thor with, with his top off, you know, although. It kind of is also, um, but <laughs> it's it's more about a, a questioning gaze. If the male gaze is about control and objectification, she felt that the female gaze was more exploratory and and questioning and and, and curious. And I, I struggled with that a little bit at first, but I think I think as in so many things, I think she's onto something. I think there is something about that. This a kind of a sense of openness and a sense of possibility maybe is is what we're looking for with the female gaze and I feel like you see that with some female filmmakers I feel like you know something like Nomadland let's say just to pick a very you know high profile example but it's a very kind of searching film it's it's a it's literally someone who's just traveling without a name without a purpose just kind of being open to the world, and I think maybe there's something in that. The, the key thing to me is if you if you think that Roger Ebert was right with his idea that cinema is an empathy machine, and I do, I think it I think it absolutely creates empathy. It's very worrying that we are working so hard to create empathy with straight cis white able-bodied men. And, and almost no one else you know that that is a real concern in the world because I think all of this over and over and over again on all our screens you know much of our literature in lots of our music really can have an effect and we all have to try and be aware of that and sort of be
0: be alive to it the the evidence in your book through the decades of the way that Hollywood and the studios control women, their appearance, Mm -hmm. their sexuality, whether or not they bear children, right through to the eighties and nineties, where you have all Mm -hmm. the adventure films and the whole idea of franchises and you know, you gotta have a just an idea that sells right across the world and that tends to come from lots of work that's already been created by men. I just wonder, you know, now if we fast forward into the world of streaming and social media, do you feel like the fundamental Misogyny that exists in in the system has, has that shifted? I, I do have hope. I really do. I think me too. And
2: and the, and the, the Ferrari around it, you know, it didn't do everything we wanted. It most of the perpetrators will never face any consequences, or certainly not not the the, the level of consequences that you might hope for. But it did change something in the mentality and it made people aware of how much they needed to shift, I think. And we're beginning to see little shoots of green from that. And and it's, you know, sometimes it's as basic as the studios now feel like if they are having a female led project, they have to justify hiring a male director in a way that they wouldn't have had to 10 or 15 years ago. They just wouldn't have. It wouldn't have been a question for the most part. And anyone who did complain would have been dismissed. I think now there's so much noise on social media that that is something that they would really have to justify hard. And that gives, you know, I know that's the top of the end of the kind of the, you know, the money tree, if you like. But that does give women a chance to prove that they can work at that top level. And if they prove that they can, like with Patty Jenkins and Wonder Woman, that shifts something lower. Down and it suddenly starts to to shake away those myths that women can't do certain things. Women you don't want to or can't do big action movies. That has a, an effect on what happens further down the chain and what kind of chances women get. We're also seeing women who do have power really consciously using that. And again, a way they might not have done in the past. Um, you've got you know, the incredible work done by Eva DuVernay with Queen Sugar. You've got the incredible work done by Shonda Rhimes, mm. just giving so many women, and especially women of color, their first opportunity to direct high profile stuff, which they then have on their CV and they can hopefully use to, to leap forward. And that just wasn't necessarily happening before in the same way. But we have to keep the pressure up and we have to keep talking about it and we have to keep making noise because, you know, as we've just so- seen in the Supreme Court, eternal vigilance is the price of, of progress. Um, if we don't stay vigilant, the progress will just evaporate or even go backwards.
0: Yeah. yeah we're, um, I mean, we're recording this just after the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that fear of things going backwards as retaliation for forwards yes. motion, which is... What feels as though is going on at the moment is kind of actually women, you've had it too good and you've been able to have it all for far too long and now we need to take that rug away. And there is the terrifying radicalisation of boys in schools at the moment that's going on completely unpoliced, unacknowledged and often... Sorry, I'm getting on my high horse now, but yeah, (laughs) often facilitated by mothers who I have conversations with mothers saying, oh, they're teaching my son that he can't have sexual feelings because they're teaching him about consent. And he's thinking that he's a sexual predator, but he's just my little boy. And none of the conversation of, well, a lot of them are going to be or are when you look at the statistics. So somebody's little boys out there. But
0: but Holly, you're not on your high horse. I mean, what Helen, what I loved about your book is is just all the evidence that you say right at the beginning. Yeah. I'm not looking even at world cinema. You know, there were amazing women all over the world. And, and you talk through the book about amazing non-white women and, you know, others who were trailblazers. And I didn't again, I didn't know they existed. That was a very much a conscious effort. The last thing
2: I wanted to do was a book of sort of quote unquote white feminism, you know, and and I was very conscious that I had to focus on Hollywood because I was already going crazy at the idea of just doing 120 years of cinema history and feeling wildly unqualified. And and the idea of, of bringing in the whole whole world was was impossible. But yes, Hollywood is by no means at the forefront of including women in cinema. Very, very much the opposite. And I just wanted to sort of make that clear at the beginning. I'm this, hashtag not all cinemas, you know, <laughs> not all movie industries, yeah. um, because some are better. Not all, but some are better and have a, have a better sort of history. And, yeah, in terms of, you know, just seeking out the stories of, of women of colour, of gay women, of trans women, um, it, it just felt really important to me because, again, they were there. And the problem is not that they weren't trying. The problem is that they couldn't get their foot in the door, and, and it was really, it was really amazing to find how many people kind of, because they must have known that at the time, they must have known how difficult it was going to be. But it was amazing how many were still trying and were still really working at that. And it was very, very depressing how much, um, for example, the production code held women back. So that basically stopped the career or hampered
0: the career of every single actress of colour in the studio so era of you're, And you're talking about this is kind of like an official working industry document. And, you know, you couldn't break uh, race mixing laws. You couldn't break, you know, you can have two actors of different races kissing, for example. So how are you ever exactly. going to cast a black or an Asian or any other, you know, uh, other ethnic actor in, in a mainstream role? Exactly. Because, you know, you weren't going to cast two, were you? And have a love story. <laughs> That's too My niche. Goodness. Way too niche. Too
2: niche. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, and this is one of, I think this, this, this fed into um, some of the racist myths that Hollywood then fed itself. You know, there was this myth for for decades that black men couldn't open films overseas you know and it really hampered the career of Denzel Washington and then Will Smith comes along and it turns out it was never true to begin with there was this myth that people didn't want to see a, a superheroine and then Wonder Woman comes along and it turns out it was just that they'd made bad ones before uh, there was a myth that they wouldn't go and see a black superhero in a leading role and then Black Panther comes along and makes a billion dollars at the box office but it's all of these myths that had become ingrained in hollywood and ingrained in the thinking of studio execs of advertising of marketing of everybody because they'd never really tested them and when they had tested them they'd done so so inauthentically that of course they hadn't been embraced by their you know by their target audience or the wider world so so yeah but it's it's so frustrating over and over again and a lot of it goes back to the production code because as you say it was it absolutely banned interracial romance and that just cut out the opportunities for almost every actress out there apart from the ones cast in terribly stereotypical maid roles and and you know as mammies
1: and things like that and one thing that you say in your book which i think is so true is that we forget how much all of those stories and images create our own beliefs So I grew up watching old films and the thing that really got me was black and white movies where the lead male grabs quite aggressively the female and then makes her kiss him and she struggles for a bit and then she gives in. Mm -hmm. And you think, is it that being made to kiss someone is somehow that's attractive because it doesn't feel as though it's right and but you're still kind of believing that that is a fundamental truth yeah and there's some so much discussion nowadays which i think
2: is is very healthy in a lot of ways about how when you watch like 90s rom-coms it's like are these people all stalkers they all seem to be stalking each other this is making me very uncomfortable and look i still love those films and and i i have to sort of suspend disbelief um and and it can obviously have a, a very corrosive effect. So I feel like you have to be able to compartmentalize those films to still enjoy them. Um as you have to do with so much of old Hollywood. You know, I, I have a, a soft spot for Gone with the Wind based purely on the fact that my name is O'Hara and so is Scarlett. But it's 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 appalling. It is objectively an appalling film in its racism, in its depiction of the South, and it makes me very uncomfortable
0: to actually watch it. So, so Helen, how do you straddle those two objectives now in, in modern film criticism because you, you know the history you know how many people have been kept out in the book you talk about all these different tests we've talked about the Bechdel test Bechdel Wallace uh, but you talk about all these I didn't even know they existed the Smurfette test the uh, there were several others um, sexy lamp test. sexy lamp test. That, <laughs> that was one of a my very friends. good one yeah that was and one. of course the air rating yes, which is exactly. Uh, you know, very important but I mean but yeah no, how do you yeah. how do you kind of look at you know you're looking at a film you, you want to say to people how good or whether you liked it or not but also like it's worth how do you how do you judge mm. that I, I just think you have to be honest about it I think you have to discuss this stuff
2: and, and I know I feel like you know I feel like I can say I still enjoyed a thing with its flaws and maybe that makes me a bad person in some ways or an uncommitted ally in some ways. But I, but I try to be honest about the fact that I really enjoyed this, but I thought that... Um, so what was the... Oh, like Top Gun Maverick, I thought it was a freaking magnificent action blockbuster. As action blockbusters go, it doesn't get much better than that. But, you know, I do feel like the black characters were mostly reduced to supportive friends. And you know, maybe if you'd swap the casting and made the, the sort of the Iceman character, the, the the new equivalent to Iceman Hangman, a black man, maybe that would have been more interesting. Um, and maybe they didn't want to because they didn't want, you know, essentially to make a black guy the bad guy to an extent. But you know, m- maybe there was an argument for that. So I feel like you say that stuff, um, but there's still a very long way to go in terms of the quality of roles, the percentage of roles, the the outspokenness, and and I mean. Don't even get me started on you know LGBT people lag behind that conversation, and people with disabilities lag even further back because that conversation I feel has barely begun in Hollywood and is really really lagging behind. And I think it is another one that we really re- need to have a, a conversation about because you've had what 30, 35 actors win Oscars for playing someone with a disability, and I think two of them had a disability. You know, it's that's not a great ratio. Oh, wait, no, it would have changed now, thanks to CODA. So that would be three who had a disability. I
1: I correct myself. Even so, a very, very bad percentage. So I'm interested in in the other way round as well. So I was raving to my family about Power of the Dog, and my daughter, who's 17 and a huge film fan, watched it and then came back to me and said, Mum, do you think if that had been directed by a man, you would have just hated it? (laughs) And I was like... Oh, my
0: God. Oh, that's yes. a really good question.
1: <laughs> it is, yeah. I think
2: there is this fear, isn't there, of, of sort of grading on a curve mm. when you when you look at a woman's thing. Because, you you, I, you, know, I have the same thing. I want to support female because I want to support women's cinema. They've lacked support for so long. You know, I, I want that to be part of what I do. But at the same time, you, as a critic, you owe it to your, your readers or your listeners or whatever way you're doing it. To, to be as honest as possible and, and to be as, as straightforward as possible. Uh, I, I don't know what the answer is. I think all you can do is try and be awake to the possibility and, and you know, act accordingly. Well,
0: I mean, I've, I felt a little bit that way, Holly. Miss Marvel is the sensation now in our household. And like, I, I've just, I'm not on Twitter that much, but I had to get on the other day and go, oh my God, my children were just able to watch partition on television. Like, and yet... There are some parts of it I like and some parts where I'm like, what is that? You know, but the point is the point in your book and all of this and this this podcast is you got to let others fail, too. And you got to let them make not so great movies, too. And like, you know, you talk about it. The penalty for non-white male directors or content makers is much harsher historically, women have gone to essentially
2: movie jail for a lot less than men. It's interesting, actually, I was just reading the Mike Nichols book uh, by, is it Mark Harris, which is a phenomenal, phenomenal biography, if you haven't read it, highly, highly recommend it. Um, But it was fascinating because he is seen as one of the great directors. And he had enormous hits during his career, like The Graduate, and, you know, Who's afraid of Virginia Woolf and the like. But he also had enormous flops just just embarrassing flops that no one talks about and yet his partner uh, Elaine May who had come up with him and one of the few women who was acknowledged in the 70s as a genius she had one flop, and that was it. She was out the door. She was considered untouchable. you know, and I, so I feel like even there, even in even in two cases of one comedy duo, there's a really interesting portrayal of who gets to fail and who doesn't. You know, we need to lie, Patty Jenkins, a Wonder Woman 1984 and say, look, it wasn't as good. I'm sorry, it just wasn't. Um, and still have her get to make her Star Wars movie or whatever it is, or Cleopatra or whatever it is that she's doing next. It's really important that she gets the chance to go, all right, I'll show you next time. This is going to be ace. Uh, because that's what the men have always done. I mean, Mike Nichols was almost, for a period in his career, hit flop, hit flop, hit flop. Mm-hmm. You know, but the women haven't had that chance. And, and so few female film directors have ever made 10 movies. They've been able to make one a decade in many cases. So they haven't got the body of work that the men have. And it's because they haven't been allowed to come back from disappointments.
1: And they fail for all women as well. So oh, it's yeah. not just so they failed and therefore women in therefore a way that nobody direct. ever speaks yeah. about men. Yeah. Of kind of actually have you seen how much shit straight white men have made? Like <laughs> the volume of it is astronomical. And if you're going to argue that if you make shit, you can't make any more, then the argument is never let straight white men make any more movies. Exactly.
0: They've had their chance. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Helen... You know, moving away from the kind of actual filmmaking world and, and just focusing again on the world of critics, because, you know, critics have a lot of power. I mean, you signal to all of us, you know, what we should and shouldn't be watching. How far does that world need to go? I mean, there are some women, but the names, you know, the main names are still white men. Mm-hmm. And when I Googled it, I don't see, I see no non-white faces. Now, I don't know the entire galaxy of critics, but I don't see that much diversity, basically.
2: Yeah, it's it's beginning to change. I think it's got, a, actually, if anything, further to go uh, in some ways than than some of the, the other jobs in Hollywood, and certainly than stardom, you know, the, the most visible jobs. We've certainly begun to make a real effort in Empire over the last 10 years, certainly the last five years, I have great, great colleagues like uh, Amon Warman, um, who's who's a black critic, who's still young, but coming up brilliantly. And we are kind of reaching out and trying to improve the situation and trying to, to make a conscious effort and not just assume that people will turn up on our doorstep, it's kind of fully formed. Uh, and I think that's been the way, you know, I, I know the London Film Critics Circle, we've had a, a diversity committee that has been working over the last couple of years and trying to find everybody that's out there and make sure, you know, they're being supported and they're being encouraged and they're being welcomed into the fold. And I'm just frustrated for all the people who should be late in their careers and have just never had the chance to develop in the way that they should have done. But yeah, the numbers are appalling. I'm not going to lie. They're they're absolutely appalling. They're coming from a place of, you know, it feels like in this country less than five percent. And so it's, it's taking a long time to get up to a, a
1: reasonable level of you know, diversity. I know that there are films, smaller budget films that critics have mm-hmm. really made. Like, oh. I don't think Bait would have got the attention if Mark Kermode hadn't really got behind it and yeah. championed it.
2: Yeah, this is, I mean, this is a, a topic of real discussion in uh, these days. You know, are critics actually important? And you see all of these people kind of crowing that, oh, you know, critics all hated Transformers 5, but ha ha, it got a bajillion and a half dollars at the box office. But I think it is often the case that critics are important for the smaller films and for championing those. That is where critics can really make a difference. And I think, yes, the lack of diversity in criticism is conducive to missing the importance of lots of films made by people who aren't straight, white, cis, able-bodied men, like all the or many of the critics. And so historically, female films have been dismissed as lighter or fluffier simply because they're about women and that has that is a problem that is a problem unless men are making a conscious effort they're simply not used to having to put themselves in other people's shoes in that way and and so they they genuinely struggle it's not that it's not a a conscious thing it's not a, a malicious thing but they genuinely don't connect with a lot of these protagonists who don't look like them and there is research showing that you know films about or by women get harsher reviews from male critics. And when male critics make up two thirds or more of the critics available, that is a problem for those films. So again, that's something that men, I think, have been thinking about, have been confronting, have beginning to deal with in the last few years. And I think that is making a difference in, in some of the raves that some of these films get. And I think
0: that's a good thing and will hopefully change things going forward. I hope in this podcast we're also showcasing a lot of films, a lot of amazing films that are made by women or directed by women, written by women. But is there a couple that you would... Want um, to shout out to, you know, if you haven't seen them, either from the very early era or more recently, that you really feel that if you've missed them, you've really missed something amazing?
2: Uh, well, from the early era, I would say Shoes by Lois Weber is really worth a look because it's a very socially conscious, campaigning kind of piece of cinema. And it's really fascinating to see that 100 years ago. And recently, look, I, I mean, I would say that Smart has my whole heart. I just... Loved it. I, I I actually was angry watching it that my best friend from school wasn't with me. Now, we're not like the the woman in the film particularly. Neither of us is, is gay. You know, we, we didn't fail to party during school. But I just, I wanted her there because I felt like this is us. This is our dynamic. This is our friendship. This is women's lives as I recognize them on the screen in a way that I don't often see. And I think it's that shock of recognition that we have that men get all the time and they don't even know it and we are denied so much mm. so when it comes yeah. with something like that it's so powerful so so yeah book smart if you haven't seen it and i'm sure you
0: have if you're listening I, to this I podcast se- have you not well <gasps> i haven't seen either i haven't seen oh either. you well, are for se- no, such a treat. no this is why i do this podcast i know nothing about film but oh my god i get the best recommendations ever um, Helen O'Hara thank you so much for joining us the book if you haven't read it along with those films if you haven't read this book please read it Women vs. Hollywood The Fall and Rise of Women in Film
1: Thank you Thank you Helen So we're not doing this for any financial gain we're doing this to support women in film I'm sure you want to support women in film as well and the easiest way you can do that is to like, subscribe follow this podcast and do please share it
0: with as many people as you possibly can yeah, and next time woo! Our first director, uh, Sarah Gavron, and I promise you the two films that we talk about, Life Changing Rocks and Suffragette. So please please tune in next time to hear from director Sarah Gavron. Thanks very much for listening.